Hebrews 10 and Psalm 40. The 30th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on April 3, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 11, Psalm 40, accompanies this talk. Technical difficulties resulted in a brief loss of sound quality for the first few seconds of the teaching. To remind you of the context in Hebrews, I'm going to read from chapter 10, 1 through 10 in my translation. I'm reading my translation here. Now, speaking with reference to the same offerings that they bring perpetually year after year, since the covenant has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the exact same likeness to those events, it is never at any time able to render talios those who draw near, because in that event would not the bringing of offerings have stopped, since no one would have a consciousness of sins any longer, when once the worshippers had been rendered clean. Rather, in them is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. Therefore, when it comes to the ritualistic system of sacrifices, it says, You do not want a sacrifice and offering. Rather, you have arranged a body for me. In whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you find no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written concerning me to do your will, O God. And that part was a quote from Psalm 40. He goes on, After saying above sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not want, nor do you find any pleasure in them, things that are offered in accord with the covenant, then it says, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order that he might establish the second. By this will, we are sanctified in view of the one-time offering of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. So you'll notice in the last paragraph there that I read, central to his whole point is this quote of two or three verses out of Psalm 40. So I want to turn to Psalm 40, and you may have a handout that you got by email. Otherwise, if you want to use your regular Bibles, that's fine. I'm going to be reading from the handout that you got. This is the New American Standard Version translation of Psalm 40 with some modifications that I've made. So it won't follow the New American Standard exactly, but I've basically taken their translation and then tweaked it at some critical points. Let, let me read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and figure out what it's saying. For the choir director, a Psalm of David... I waited patiently for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footing firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not looked to the defiant nor turned aside to falsehood. 
Great, O Yahweh, my God, are the wonders which you have done, even your plans with respect to us. There is none to compare with you. If I wanted to declare and speak of them, they would be too marvelous to recount. Sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire, a body you have prepared for me. Bird offering and sin offering you did not ask for at the very time when I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of Dikaiasune in the great assembly. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Yahweh, you know, I have not hidden your Dikaiasune within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your chesed and your truth from the great assembly. You, O Yahweh, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your chesed and your truth will continually preserve me. Indeed, evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. Make haste, O Yahweh, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, May Yahweh be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Okay, he begins the psalm, I waited patiently for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. The critical question about Psalm 40 is, what cry? What's he crying for? What is he crying out to God for? It's very tempting when you read this psalm, and I found myself succumbing to this temptation. If you just read the psalm and read it casually, it sounds like any one of a number of psalms that have the theme, I, the righteous, anointed one, appointed by God and promised an eternal kingdom, am beset by enemies of you, God. The unrighteous enemies of you and your purposes have come against me, the righteous, godly, Mashiach, anointed one of Israel. God, defend me, protect me, keep me safe from your enemies. That's a very common theme in several of the Psalms. It's easy to look at this and go, okay, here we go again. That's what he's talking about again. He clearly has in mind being in physical danger. They seek his life that they might take it. They seek to do harm to him. So clearly there is some physical harm that is, he's threatened with, and he's crying out to God for help. So you're tempted to think that's what's going on here. However, this whole part that Paul quotes right in the middle of it, sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire, a body you have prepared for me, burnt offering and sin offering you did not ask for, what's that doing there? Why is that even on the table in a prayer where he's asking God for help with respect to his literal enemies who are out to kill him? So, in order to bring coherence to the psalm and in order to understand why this gets used in Hebrews 10 by Paul, 
we have to go back to the drawing board and think of another way of reconstructing the background to the psalm. I think it's a different scenario than Paul simply being threatened by the enemies of God. In fact, I think the scenario is David has committed an egregious sin. He knows he has. He's overwhelmed by guilt and the sense of doom at the condemnation that he deserves. And he's overwhelmed by that. And so he's crying out to God. I think that's the crying out in that first statement. He's crying out to God for help, for some kind of positive response to him in the midst of this incredible doom that is hanging over him. He deserves to be destroyed by God for the evil that he's done. He knows it, and it weighs on him. He feels it. He cries out to God. So when he talks about the deliverance that God is bringing, it's deliverance from that sense of doom. It's deliverance from condemnation. It's forgiveness. It's mercy. That's what God is granting to him. And the whole first half of the psalm is about that, I would argue just so we get some context here. Well, that's the first part of the psalm. Then in the second part of the psalm, now he really literally is talking about deliverance from somebody trying to kill him, take his life, harm him physically. But he connects it with iniquities. He says, my iniquities are more numerous than the hair on my head, and so on. What is he talking about? I think that the way to understand the last half of the psalm is to understand that those iniquities that he has committed earlier in his life have had certain consequences that are now literally threatening his life. Some people are out to kill him. Why are they out to kill him? Because David has dealt with them treacherously and evilly in the past. And because of the evil, treacherous actions of David, he has set in motion dynamics, interpersonal dynamics, that have led to him now, at the point that he's writing the psalm, being in a position of real danger. So let's imagine, I don't know if we could ever identify the circumstances that this psalm is talking about from the historical books, First and Second Samuel. I don't know if, or, or any, anything else. I don't know if any of the historical books actually give us a recounting of this event that's in view here. But we can guess at events like the one that is in view, even if we couldn't identify the event itself. Think about David's most notorious sin. is when he spotted Bathsheba bathing on the housetop, sent somebody to get her, brings her to the palace, he commits adultery with her, and then to cover up his adultery, he treacherously arranges for the murder of her husband, Uriah. So the double sin of adultery and murder, the most notorious sin that we have in the record of David. Out of that came offspring. Uriah was killed. Now just, I'm totally speculating here. I have no evidence to back this up, but This is just a thought experiment. Imagine the relatives of Uriah, if they eventually found out about David, and I think we have some clues even in this psalm, that it probably became common knowledge in Israel what David had done. When he came to a point of experiencing the forgiveness and the mercy of God, he taught what he calls the great assembly. He announced it in the great assembly. Well, 
his announcement of the mercy of God probably included an announcement of what it is that he had done and what God was dealing with him in mercy toward. What was his sin? Well, you can imagine people with who had not figured out the role of mercy in life who were maybe related to Uriah thinking ill of David and wanting to get revenge. And in that began a process where a faction, a group of people came into being who were out to get him. So it may very well be that this psalm is in a kind of circumstance where somebody is out to get David as revenge for something that he had done. And we can imagine the kinds of things that that might have been. So the latter part of the psalm, then starting with verse 11 and following, the latter part of the psalm is David crying out to God for help and protection and deliverance from literally the murderous intent of people that have come out to murder him. Why? Because of David's iniquities, because of evil that David has committed first. And that's the last part of the psalm. Okay, let's take it from the top then and try to understand what he's saying here. I waited patiently for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry, my cry for help in the circumstances of this sense of doom for the condemnation that hung over my head because of the evil that I had done. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Now, this is very strong language. He finds himself in the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. The pit of destruction, I think, is a metaphor. Pits in the ancient world were often used as prisons. When you had a prisoner, what would you do with him? You lowered him into a pit that he couldn't climb out of, and that's how you kept him confined. So the pit of destruction would be if you intend to execute somebody, for example, and you've got them down at the bottom of a pit waiting for the, the opportunity to execute them, they are sitting there enclosed in the pit of destruction. It would be like death row in our language. You know, you're sitting on death row. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. Somehow this inescapable pit that he was in that was ultimately going to spell his destruction, God released him from that, and he got free from that. To get free from that is to get free from the destiny that was betokened by that. Out of the miry clay, I think we're thinking something like quicksand here. What is quicksand? Really dangerous quicksand is sand that will not support your weight, and you will sink into it. You cannot free yourself from it, and you're ultimately going to suffocate as you sink below, as it covers your head, and you sink into the quicksand itself. You've delivered me out of the miry clay. It's a switch of metaphors meaning the same thing. I'm doomed here. I'm headed. My end is going to be destruction, and I can't escape it. There's nothing I can do to release myself from the fate that is in store for me. My ankles are stuck, and I can't move. I have no way of getting out of here. It's only a matter of time I'm going to suffocate to death. Now, what kind of thing is he talking about? We are all evil people. We are morally broken people. But much of our brokenness kind of just sneaks up on us and insinuates itself into our very lives and our very character and our very personality. We start lying. 
And we lie again, and we lie again, and we tell bigger lies until deceit becomes a part of who I am. Or I'm proud and arrogant, and I allow myself the luxury of being and expressing my pride and arrogance, and I keep doing that, and I keep doing it until arrogance and pride just becomes a manifest part of my own character, my personality, my very being. Mostly we don't have moral crises over some of our worst sins. We don't, it doesn't throw us into a moral crisis because we just sort of habituated ourselves to how bad we are, to how evil we are, to how wicked we are. But every now and then, if you're like me, there came a time in your life where you surprised even yourself at how evil you could be, at how treacherous you could be, at how cruel you could be, at how perverse you could be, at how something that you could be. And you were shocked because with normal human brokenness and depravity, we can keep telling ourselves, well, it's not, it's just being a human being, which it is. But we can somehow vaguely defend it. We can vaguely kind of put it off. But every now and then, something is, is a, just a splash of ice-cold water in the face. No, Jack, you are evil. You thought you would never be that bad, do something that egregious, that offend God and your fellow man in that kind of way. You thought you were a good guy. And all of a sudden, you find that the very thing that you've done violates everything that you think you're committed to everything that you think you stand for, everything that has gone into your self-concept, and you violated it. Well, I dare say all of us either have or will have that kind of experience because that's how bad we are. That was David's experience, I think, with Bathsheba and Uriah. At the time that he committed that sin, there had already been promises made to him by God, promising him an everlasting kingdom. That had to be give him a certain amount of, in his self-concept, well, I'm, I'm a righteous dude. I would never do that. And then he did. And a terrible, terrible evil. This psalm is either about that or something very much like that, that he has committed. When you're thrown into that kind of moral crisis, then all of a sudden you are awakened to the doom that awaits you in a way that the normal everyday depravity of your personality and your character doesn't confront you with. And you're confronted with how dire, awful your destiny is because you know that you stand condemned. People like you, people who do what you just did, don't deserve to go on existing. Those are the people who are saved up for annihilation and destruction, and their existence is going to be snuffed out by the judgment and condemnation of a righteous God. And you know that. You feel it with every fiber of your being. Well, out of that, David cries out. And what did God do? He responded by bringing him out of that pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock making my footing firm, I think, keeping with the metaphor of the quicksand. He gave me some footing so that I was no longer doomed to sink and suffocate in the miry clay. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
here I think the song is a metaphor for joy and delight and the delight that he would experience from the relief that he would feel when the doom has been lifted. No longer does he face into a destiny of total destruction and condemnation. And that would certainly lighten your mood and make you want to sing. But it's a song of praise for God because of the role God played in lifting the doom. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. And I think what he's getting at here is, because of my experience, many are going to learn from my experience about the God with whom we have to do, how merciful that God is. And many are going to see that lesson And they are going to fear Yahweh and trust in Yahweh for their deliverance from condemnation. They're going to look to God and his mercy to be delivered from their guilt. They will learn from my example. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust. Now, has made Yahweh his trust with respect to what? Obviously, trusting God for anything is a valuable thing to do. But in the context... Blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust when it comes to his eternal destiny in the light of how bad we are, how ungodly and unrighteous we are, who trusts in God's mercy, who trusts God to solve my problem for me. Blessed is the man who does that, who deals with his sin that way. In contradistinction to, look what he goes on to say, and has not looked to the defiant, nor turned aside to falsehood. Look to the defiant for what? An example of how to deal with your sin. Or turned aside to falsehood for what? As a way of dealing with your sin. And I think probably all of us can relate to that as well, because all of us at one time or another have done one or the other of those two things. Instead of trusting in Yahweh... We have taken the example of the defiant. I'm not sure that's the best way to translate it, but have looked to the example of the defiant. How do they respond to sin? Oh, yeah? What of it? Just out of their sheer rebellion, they refuse to be broken. They refuse to have their hearts reduced to a broken and contrite heart by their failing. They fortify their hearts against God against truth, against righteousness, and against goodness. Yeah, I did what I did, what of it? I'd do it again. So one way we can deal with sin in our life is to simply harden ourselves against what truth says are the consequences of our sin, our condemnation. And we can just harden ourselves against that and be resistant to it. We can do that instead of trusting in the mercy of God. Or more often, and I think more frequently, we turn aside to falsehood. What do we do? We enter into one form or another of self-deception. Wasn't that bad? Yeah, I did it, but I didn't mean to. I meant well. Yeah, I did it, and technically it's not righteous, but it's not that I'm unrighteous. I just got caught by the circumstances, and I didn't have time to think about it. I don't know if I have shared here the most 
shameful event in my life. I won't bore you with the details, but my freshman year in college, I did something that was the most shameful thing that I have ever done in my mind. And as I was walking back to the dorm after doing this, I remember now, I blanked it out for decades, but I remember now my mind going over and over what happened, convincing myself that I hadn't really done anything wrong. And by the next morning, I was so convinced that I hadn't done anything wrong that I could put it behind me and leave it buried. Twarn't nothing until decades later, and I think this was God's grace. I just wasn't going to be psychologically strong enough to face into it at the time. Decades later, once I I had studied the Bible, I had come to understand the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God that's available to us, and being equipped now with truth, all of a sudden, out of the blue, God brought back to my memory what I had done that day. And even at the time, it struck me, you did that? (laughs) What were you thinking? Who are you, Jack? Well, at that time, I could face into it honestly, and because I understood now the mercy of God, that doesn't condemn me. God is not going to condemn me for what I did. But for my purposes, how did I deal with my sin? I turned aside to falsehood. I lied to myself. I lied to myself big time in order to protect myself from the doom of the damning condemnation that was due me for what I had just done. And David's point is, blessed is the man who faces squarely into how bad your sin actually is and instead entrusts himself to God, to Yahweh. Trust in the mercy of God, trust in the purposes of God, trust in the plan of God to simply not hold that against you and make that the solid fitting you stand on rather than this lie that you think is going to support you and help you deal with your sin. Then he goes on in verse 5, paragraph 4 in my... Most translations have numerous here, and it makes it sound like the paragraph is about how many are the wonders of God. And, of course, it suggests that we're talking about the wonders of God are miracles and powerful acts of power on God's part. Well, it is powerful, but it's not parting the Red Sea kind of stuff. It's the wonder of the profound depths and extent of God's mercy. That's what he's marveling at. So rather than numerous, I think I would translate it great. It's qualitatively much, not quantitatively much. Great, O Yahweh, my God, are the wonders which you have done, even your plans with respect to us. There is none to compare with you. Now, at that point, I don't think we know what these plans with respect to us are or exactly what these wonders are. I think that's what the rest of the paragraph is going to fill out for us. If I wanted to declare and speak of them, they would be too marvelous to recount. They are so wonderful and so great that words cannot express, cannot really capture how extensive and how profound your mercy is, God. But what are these wonders? What are these deeds? Well, he goes on now to tell us. Sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire, a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not ask for at the very time when I said, Behold, I come, 
In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. I think the way to understand what he's describing here is from my sentence four. I'm not sure what verse it is in your English Bible, but six or seven or so. Sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire. From then on to the end of that paragraph, at the end of verse eight, he's he's hearkening back to a past event in his life, this past event that I've been kind of trying to vaguely paint a picture of. He's hearkening back to that event. After he sinned, he felt a keen sense of doom as he understood the implications of his sin. He stood condemned. He deserved to be destroyed, and there's nothing that could reverse his fate. That was a traumatic realization for him. You have in other Psalms, he describes it, my bones melted within me. He describes how it racked his body physically as he tried to deny his sin and come to terms with it without honestly facing into it. It was a very traumatic event for him. When finally he stopped lying to himself, and I don't know if that was before the prophet Nathan came to him or when the prophet Nathan came to him, but you remember that story. The prophet Nathan comes to David and tells him a parable about a shepherd who stole his neighbor's sheep and can't remember what he did with it. Nathan asks him, what should be done? And David talks about how the one who stole his sheep needs to be condemned. And Nathan turns to David and points to him and said, you are the one. And he's basically just confronting him with the sin, and he's referring to Bathsheba and Uriah. You are the one who deserves to be destroyed. David. And David breaks at that point. Now, that was probably in conjunction with a lot of sleepless nights and other stuff going on in David's life as well. But eventually, David comes to a point where he's broken. Now he has a broken and contrite heart. His arrogant pride, his self-deception, once that was gone, instead, at that point, in his brokenness, he was filled with the desire to do the will of God which is to say he found God's Torah written in his heart. He wanted to be right with God. He wanted, if possible, to receive mercy for his sins that haunted him and to get a new start with God. He wanted to start over on a path of obedience. And I think that's what he's describing here. At a time when he said, Behold, I come. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. There is a point in his life where his broken and contrite heart made room for a sanctified heart that found pleasure and delight in being right with God in doing his will. And he gives expression to that in this psalm. Well, it was in that context, in the context of in his brokenness, having his deception and pride replaced with a sanctified desire to do the will of God, that it was in that context that it occurred to him that he ought to offer the requisite sacrifices and offerings. Mosaic Covenant prescribed propitiatory offerings of various kinds, various contexts. David thinks, okay, I need to go do that. Apparently, either by just sheer insight on David's part, or It's entirely possible that it was by divine revelation, direct divine revelation from God. It became clear to David 
God doesn't want animal sacrifices, and he doesn't really actually require them. That's not what he wants from me. In order to receive mercy from him and get back on the right path of obedience to him, these offerings would have nothing to do with that. They're totally beside the point of what God really, really wants from me. And that's what David is describing here. Sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire. A body you prepared to me, I'll respond to that in a second. Burn offering and sin offering you did not ask for. At the very time when I said, behold, I come, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. At the time when I wanted to do your will, what I discovered was your will doesn't necessitate bringing animal sacrifices. That, I think, is the point that he's making. Okay, there's two clauses there we need to talk about. A body you have prepared for me. Sacrifice and meal offering you did not desire. A body you have prepared for me. Part of his insight was animal sacrifices don't actually, like, appeal to you. That's not interesting to you. You don't place any value on animal sacrifices. If you're going to show me mercy, if there's something that needs to be offered, if there's something that needs to be sacrificed in order for you to show mercy to me, it ain't these. It's not animal sacrifices. It's something else. I know not what, but you, God, are going to supply it. It's kind of on you, and I know you'll take care of that. I know you can take care of that. So whatever body needs to burn on the altar or whatever needs to happen, that's on you to supply that because what's become clear to me, God, is you don't want me throwing animal carcasses on the altar and burning them. That doesn't please you. That's of no value to you. So I don't think we have here, at least certainly the psalm does not require, that we have here a prediction of the sacrifice of Jesus, not directly, not explicitly, but rather it's just that David's insight is whatever ultimately is going to be the foundation and the basis for your offer of mercy to me, you're going to supply it. You've prepared it, and it's not these animal sacrifices. Well, when we get to Hebrews 10, that statement is going to be a big deal to Paul. A body you have prepared for me, he's going to argue, is the body of Jesus offered up on the cross. But I don't think he's saying by that David knew that, and David understood that, and David is predicting that. But he is saying what David didn't know and only sort of in a shadowy kind of way anticipated, we can see clearly that the offering of Jesus was exactly the kind of thing that David was beginning to anticipate there. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not ask for at the very time when I said, behold, I come. And then he puts kind of parenthetically, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your Torah is within my heart. It seems to me there's two possibilities here. And it's really, both of them are a little bit problematic. One is that This is David writing, right? This is David, the Mashiach, uh, the anointed one appointed by God to be king, and his throne is going to last forever. He's going to be, uh, the Mashiach is going to be the embodiment of the righteous rule of God forever. 
That's the promise in the Davidic covenant. Well, if the scroll of the book is somehow the scriptures, or if not the scriptures, the book that's noticed that the Davidic covenant is contained in, what, 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel? One of the Samuels, which I don't know, is it around at the time that David is writing this psalm? Could be being composed, I suppose, but certainly it's not well established as scripture by, at this point. It's not hasn't been enough time yet for it to become a widely known and accepted scripture, I shouldn't think. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. And part of the problem is, notice what he's saying. Behold, I come, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your Torah is within my heart. Whatever is written in the scroll of the book is supposed to explain why David has this broken and contrite heart and a sanctified heart. Well, there are a lot of people that came in the line of David that never had this sanctified heart. So would the Davidic covenant be enough to explain this sanctified response on the part of David? Uh, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't seem to me that it would. The other alternative is that the scroll of the book, therefore, is a metaphor for the sovereign preordained purposes of God. It's as if there's this script written for all of reality, all of history, all of this story that is unfolding that God is the author of, that that script pre-exists. I mean, we know that. Everything is happening according to script. Nothing happens that is not completely and totally and utterly in conformity with what God has willed and had willed from before the foundation of the earth. It could be that the scroll of the book is a metaphorical way of describing that preordained script and that what David is saying is, I was fated to be sanctified. It was fated to be that I would respond in this particular way. I would not continue in my defiance. I would not continue in my self-deception. I couldn't because God had not scripted it that way. He had given a different role for me. And so he's simply referring to his way of saying, I responded the way I responded because God ordained it. God in his sovereignty was making it happen. That doesn't have any problems with it, theologically, I think, because I think that's exactly the truth that gets repeated over and over in Scripture. The one thing that bothers me about taking it that way, though, is unlike Greek mythology, for example, where you are constantly bumping into the fates or fate, that the Greeks were of two minds about this, but when all is said and done, the Greeks really were determinists as well. They realized that as powerful as the gods are, there was something even bigger than the gods, fate. And what was fate? It was just the way things were going to have to go because they were going to have to go that way. That's what I call divine determinism. It's the biblical doctrine that God is completely and totally and absolutely in control of every iota of everything that happens in all of reality, and it can't be otherwise. It's going to always be exactly as God ordained it. So the Greeks had that concept as well, but as they wrestle with that concept, they have a word for it that you keep running into, the fate or the fates, fate or the fates. What I would like to see is the scroll of the book being a metaphor that you keep running into 
in the prophets and in the other writings. Now, maybe it's there. Like, I've never read the Old Testament, so maybe it's there. I've just missed it. But my initial impression is this may be a one-time use of that metaphor, if that's what it is. So it bothers me to take it that direction when we don't have a stronger precedent for it. But I don't know any other way to take it that doesn't have some significant problems with it. So I think that's what he's saying. Okay, then he says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of dikaiosune in the great assembly. I left, instead of righteousness, what is dikaiosune? It's dikaiosune in exactly the sense that Paul talks about it in most of his writings, Romans, Galatians, and elsewhere. Dikaiosune is the state of being pardoned by God, of God not holding your sin against you, of not giving you the justice that you desert for your deeds, but actually giving you a blessing you don't deserve. That's dikaiosune. So I have proclaimed glad tidings of dikaiosune in the great assembly. If you take it that way, again, that confirms that we've been on the right track in the psalm so far. What is the psalm talking about? Forgiveness for sin. And I have proclaimed glad tidings of dikaiosune in the great assembly. I assume that's among the whole people of Israel at this point, because if he, he's the king, he's the one who has the pulpit to speak to the whole nation. I have proclaimed glad tidings of Dikaiosune in the great assembly. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O oh, Yahweh, you know, I have not hidden your Dikaiosune within my heart. That is, I haven't kept it to myself, I think. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation, rescue from condemnation. I have not concealed your chesed and your truth from the great assembly. Okay. Chesed and truth here, I think, as it once again is talking about how forgiveness for sins is impinging upon the promise that God made to David about his kingdom. The truth about his kingdom and the truth about God and his faithfulness to his promises is such that God is committed to them. So... David, in part, sees forgiving him as fulfilling the promise to David to make him the anointed one, the Mashiach, the son of God, as God had promised that he would. Okay, and then he goes on. I won't take as much time with the latter part of this. Because of those very evils that he has committed that God is granting him mercy for, it has consequences that David is facing in very concrete terms right now. There are people who want to kill him because of David's evil. You, O Yahweh, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your chesed and your truth will continually preserve me. Again, I think the chesed and the truth is God's faithful commitment to keep the promises of the Davidic covenant that he has made to David. And David is saying, you're not going to let me die premature death. You've got a promise to keep, and you're going to keep me alive in order to sustain that promise and allow that promise to be kept. Indeed, evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. And I think what he's talking about here are these iniquities. He's using those to describe the consequences of his iniquities. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to escape these consequences that are coming upon me. And I'm on the verge of despair. My heart has failed me. 
Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. Make haste, O Yahweh, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, I'm sure that's an idiom of some kind, and I don't know what that means, but it can't be good. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, may Yahweh be magnified. In other words, may you deliver exactly in keeping with your character so that everyone who counts on you to have that character and that goodness and that compassion and that chesed, that they can say, may Yahweh be magnified because they see once again you acting out of that character. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Well, what we're going to see, I'll open up for questions now, but what we're going to see now when we get to Hebrews 10, and you can already anticipate what an apt passage this is for Paul to use. Because the issue in Hebrews 10 is, under the Mosaic Covenant, we were instructed to bring animal offerings to the altar, He's been talking about the New Covenant now and how the New Covenant is a whole different gig when it comes to how we receive mercy from God. And he's argued that it's Jesus, his offering, his sacrifice, and his intercession. That's the New Covenant. It's not somehow offering animals on the altar that is going to get me mercy. It's the intercession of Jesus who offered himself up on my behalf. That's what's going to get me mercy. So... Having made that point, then he comes to Psalm 40. He cites Psalm 40 and says, see, it's just like what David was talking about. God doesn't need no stinking animals to forgive you. That's not what it's about. It's an entirely different basis. As the Psalm 40 hints at, there's an entirely different basis for it. And my salvation rests in the character of God, in the profound depths of God's mercy, not in my religiosity and in my religious performance and and that kind of thing. So it's perfectly suited to reinforce the point that Paul is trying to make in Hebrews 10, and we'll talk specifically about that next week. Questions or comments? Thank you. That was helpful. I have a couple translation questions. Okay. For when you mentioned the scroll in Uh Byron... Would that be the same as the word book in Psalm 139, where he says, in your book is written all the things for me? I don't have it, a Hebrew text handy. Yeah, because it I, talks about that 139, that in your book is written all the days that are meant for Maybe me. Maybe somebody out there has a program that they can look that up. I, yeah. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Okay. The other thing, up where it talks about in 6, where it says, a body you've prepared for me. In my Bible, it says at the bottom, that's the Septuagint. Yeah, I'm and, sorry, I meant to comment well, And then mine, it says, my ears have been pierced? Yes, yes. And I kind of had heard before that piercing ears was a sign that you belonged to somebody, that you were a slave, and that's kind of how I'd read that before. Yeah. You could... Yeah, I meant to comment on that. The Hebrew Masoretic text, which got compiled around 500, 600 A.D., right? So five or six centuries after Jesus, mm-hmm. after Paul, finally gets put together it reads, my ears you have pierced, open so or cut or pierced. So that came after Christ. It wasn't part of the old Hebrew text. Well, that's the question. The question is, even though it's compiled at 500, 600 AD, is it reflecting an earlier text, or has something changed, right? The Septuagint, 
which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done in the late 200s B.C., right? So much older. And then it has its own history of transmitting that text. There are different manuscripts of the Septuagint that read differently. There are some manuscripts, such that some editions that you could get off the shelf today of the Septuagint will read, my ears you have opened, following the Masoretic text. That's true. But other manuscripts that are reflected by other editions of the Septuagint that you can get, maybe not your Bible bookstore, but on Amazon anyway, are going to read, you have prepared, I can't remember the verb, a soma for me, a body for me. Interestingly, in Hebrews, Paul cites it the way those other two Septuagints do, not the one that says your ears you have opened. So it reads literally, a soma you have prepared for me. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm inclined to think Paul knew what he was talking about. And so when he quotes it that way, I think he's quoting it that way because he is convinced he, at his point in time, may not even realize there's any alternative, but he is convinced that the actual scripture says, a body you have prepared for me. So when I went back to this, I, in retrospect, I fixed the text. Now, why does the Masoretic text read the way it does? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I haven't done a study of this. It would be interesting for somebody to do a study of this. I've just made a rather casual observation that the places where I notice that the Hebrew Masoretic text is different from the Greek translation, the Septuagint, happen to be places that get quoted in the New Testament. Isn't that odd? And it sure seems to me that one very real possibility is by the 5th or 6th century A.D., the Jews were becoming sick and tired of talking to Christians and having them point to things in their own scripture that had a tendency from which arguments could be made, just as the New Testament writers are doing, arguments could be made that would support their claim that this Jesus who got himself crucified was in fact the Messiah. And so one way or another, they found a way to tweak their text so that they didn't have to face the embarrassing fact that their text actually did kind of point to what the Christians were saying. So I I wouldn't surprise me that that's what happened. And it would be easy enough to do because the word for prepared and the word for opened start with the same Hebrew letter. And by just tweaking a consonant or so, you can change the verb there quite easily. And I don't don't know about body and ears. I don't remember. But... How else are you going to reconcile that? My ears you have pierced or opened, either way, or a body you have prepared for me, they're not similar enough to be dealing with the same text in the background, it seems to me. Um, Jack, when you first said that David could tell that animal sacrifices wouldn't get the job done, Mm -hmm. right away I went, oh, David realized that he had to have a change in his heart. But then that isn't what Paul was talking about, and I don't think because you're saying that David, and I don't know how he could get there, but he was seeing that a different type of sacrifice needed to be made than animal sacrifices. And so, and it seems like then if I was a Mosaic Jew and living in that time and I read this, and all of a sudden here's this 
king who's saying, oh, animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. You would say, what's going on here? Or almost like, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's going in an entirely different direction. So I don't, I mean, there's two things. One, that David could even see that animal sacrifice. You've said several times, well, that wouldn't be that. They were, animal sacrifices were so kind of far out that you wouldn't think that that would be necessary for forgiveness of sins or or whatever. But I don't know how many or what type of person would be able to get to that point. That's what I'm saying. So I guess there's a couple of things that, so anyway. Okay. I don't think we should take from Psalm 40 that David would have discontinued the offering, the system. Historically, that wouldn't make any sense because obviously they kept offering the offerings. I don't think that's his point. His point is not you didn't, the Mosaic Covenant is junk and you don't want us to keep it. No, you want us to keep the Mosaic Covenant. What he's, the context within which he's saying that is, with respect to my resolving my own guilt, that's not really it. That's not what's doing it. So he can still the next day go and offer offerings at the temple, and the Jews for centuries after that can offer offerings at the temple in obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. But David has the insight whether through his own thinking or through direct revelation from God, that that's, however, is not the basis upon which any given individual finds mercy from God. It's something else. There's some other body that God is going to prepare for that. It's not this. So I think we have to confine what he's saying to the context of the problem that he's dealing with, his own sense of doom for the evil that he has seen in himself. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was basically a change in heart versus a, a oh, yeah. different okay. form of sacrifice. Yeah, we'll have to wrestle with that now when we get to Hebrews 10. It was very tempting for me the first few times through Hebrews for me to think that what he's saying is you don't want sacrifices, you want a broken and contrite heart, something that's very true, and it's tempting to think that's what Paul is arguing in Hebrews 10. I think it is, in a way, what David is saying in Psalm 40. I think you can read into what he's saying. When I came willing to do your will, you revealed to me, or I came to realize that you don't want animal sacrifices. Instead, my standing here with a sanctified heart is enough for you. I do think that's what he discovered, and I do think that's what's reflected in what he's saying here. So arguably, you could, from Psalm 40, make the case that What God really wants from me is not my religious obedience in offering offerings. What he wants from me is a broken and contrite heart. And you have prophets that say as much, that say exactly that. And I think you could make the same case from Psalm 40. That's not what Paul will do with it in Hebrews 10, though, as tempting as it is to think so. What he's going to do with it is say, it wasn't the offering of animals. It was the offering of the body of Jesus. Now, he does mention the other But it's kind of just, he's got to because it's in the psalm. He can't just ignore it. So he talks about the willingness to do the will of God as the second which replaces the first, the offering up animal sacrifices. But I'll take some time next week to explain what I think he means by that exactly in Hebrews 10. But he doesn't mean God doesn't want any offerings or any sacrifices. He just wants a broken and contrite heart. No, if God is going to have a sacrifice, he's going to have a sacrifice, but it's not animals. That's actually what he's going to argue. 
So you might have said this already, but I'm trying to remember. What is it that David's thinking when he writes, but you have prepared a body for me or a body you have prepared for me? Because it seems like he's going, we've got over here this option of sacrifice and whatnot, but that's not right. Instead, you're going to give me a body. What's going on there? Well, I don't think that you're going to give me a body. Okay. You have prepared a body that is beneficial to me that will benefit me. Think carcass. By body, think carcass. What the Mosaic Covenant requires, you slit the throat of the animal, drain it of all its blood, cut it in various pieces, and some of them you put on the altar and burn on the altar. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you've got a carcass to offer up as a burnt offering to God. David has the insight to realize, yeah, you don't like animal carcasses. Whatever carcass you do want, that's on you. You've prepared it somehow, somewhere, but it's not these animal carcasses. I would expect, if that's what's going on, that he would say, like, my sacrifices are animals you don't want. But it's like, it looks like he's taking all of this sacrifice, all of this offering, all of this religiosity, all of that, and saying, it's not that. But you're saying something different? No, I think because I'm saying that. you're replacing one dead body with another. right. And it looks like he's replacing the killing of anything or any religious action at all with something else. Well, okay. Yeah, David is not going so far as to say, God, you won't ever require any sacrifice of any kind whatsoever. He's not saying that. Okay. What he's saying is the animal sacrifices prescribed by the Mosaic Covenant, that's not it. I don't think David knows at this point, writing Psalm 40, what it is that God might require, what sacrifice, by whom, where, when, and what it looks like. I don't think he has a clue. The only thing he knows to do is to say, whatever carcass you are interested in, you're going to have to supply that. You've prepared that yourself. But it's not this. It's not the stuff we Jews offer in the temple. Doesn't it say somewhere in here that God requires a broken and contrite heart? Uh Uh-huh. So isn't that what we're replacing it with? No. We're replacing no. Uh-uh. It yeah, see, that's why it's critical yeah. to make a distinction between the ground and basis for our forgiveness and the condition for our forgiveness. Okay. Those are not the same thing. My broken and contrite heart is not the basis for my forgiveness. I mean, how hard is it to be broken when you get broke? That's something that God does to me, not something I'm offering up to him. Is he going to grant me mercy on the basis of my contrition? No, but that's a condition for my forgiveness. No one who is not broken will ever be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And so we can speak of it as what you want is a broken and contrite heart, but that's a different kind of want. That's the condition you want me to meet. You want me to face truthfully and squarely into my moral depravity and let it impact me such that I am sobered and made contrite by who I now know that I am. That's a condition. No one is going to walk up to the judgment of God proud and arrogant and cocky and self-confident and get anywhere with that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's only by being broken that we are going to be recipients of mercy. Now, why is he going to grant mercy to someone like that, though? Because Jesus is going to intercede for them as my high priest, who has commended himself to the Father as one to listen to and to give heed to his plea for mercy based on the offering that he brought on our behalf, namely his own body, his own 
willingly going to his own torture and death. His willingness to do that is the basis upon which I am going to be granted mercy. So what Paul is doing in Hebrews 10 is not talking about the condition for my forgiveness, but the basis for my forgiveness. The Mosaic Covenant makes it sound like the basis for forgiveness is animal sacrifices. Paul's saying, no, it wasn't. It's something else, namely the body of Jesus. But it's confusing because in the same context, he talks about how he met the condition for forgiveness. I come, O Lord, I delight to do your will. And that does make it confusing. Yeah, I still don't quite see it in the text, but I'll mull it over. Okay, back to Hebrews next week.